0: Hello and welcome to GC Stories, the podcast where we speak to security services professionals with an extraordinary tale to tell. My name is John Watkins, the editor of Global Custodian, and in this series, we've got custody, prime brokerage, all sorts of banking executives who have stories to tell. From former undercover police officers to ex-professional athletes, these truly are fascinating stories, and those who are telling them also have some amazing wisdom to impart. Particularly in times like this, I think it never hurts to listen to something inspirational and uplifting. I hope as many people listen to this while running, cooking or in their downtime as they do during their working day. Now before we get started, I'd just like to thank our partners in this project, Smartstream, the provider of transaction processing solutions and services to the financial community. They have been incredibly supportive of this series, just as they have with their own clients through this difficult period with the global pandemic. Their own story is one of stepping up when they needed to, reacting fast, being reliable, making sure their customers were prioritised during this period. So a big well done to Smartstream for informing and supporting the industry during this time and of course for their support of this series too. On today's episode we have Brian Murphy, Global Head of Intermediaries Client Coverage at Citi, a well known industry figure in the APAC region. Brian's story takes us on a five-year journey where he completed an epic endurance race series considered by Time Magazine as one of the top 10 endurance competitions in the world. The Ford Desert Series saw Brian complete 250 kilometer races, that's almost six marathons, in some of the most brutal conditions around the world. Starting in the Atacama Desert in Chile, one of the driest places on earth, Murphy then completed the same distances in equally as unforgiving settings, such as the Gobi Desert, Namibian Desert and finally Antarctica in 2018. This is a story of true grit and perseverance and how you can really do anything with the right mindset in either an athletic challenge or your career. Brian's story really is an audio injection of motivation if I've ever heard one. And now onto the episode we hope you enjoy our discussion with Brian Murphy. Brian
1: Murphy welcome to the podcast how are you?
2: Good thanks Sean. thank you for having me on.
1: No worries. And Brian, it's 9am on a Monday morning over here in the UK. Uh, Firstly, I think listening to your story is going to be a fantastic way for me to start my week. And secondly, I'm hoping this conversation is going to make me kind of want to run up mountains uh, this week, metaphorically maybe.
2: Yeah, and it's um 4 p.m. here in Hong Kong.
1: Yeah, how has someone like you handled lockdown? I mean, you uh, have still been able to get a get a out and about and, uh, and train and, and live your normal life?
2: Yeah, um, Hong Kong's been um, handled the coronavirus I think reasonably efficiently, uh, and so we never got to the extent of the full lockdowns that we saw in some of the other uh, some of the other countries around the region or around the world. So. Um, I mean, I, I was still able to get out and, and do some running and um, get out onto the trails. So it's um, and that was that was pretty pretty important. You know, we were mostly stuck at home during that period, but being able to get out onto the trails was was a good, a good experience.
1: Yeah, I guess it's uh, yeah, it's been. Quite a quite a year already in Hong Kong, hasn't it? But uh, yeah, good to hear you can uh, you can still find time to to get out and about. Well, look, Brian. Um, like I said, really good to talk this morning. And and, and I've actually read stories about you. I've seen pictures, uh, of some of your adventures, and, and they're incredible. For every stunning scenic background, there seems to be a photo of you in pain or, or a body part that's looking a bit worse to wear does that does that pretty sum up uh, your experiences with, with some of these challenges which we're going to get into shortly
2: yeah i mean there are there are some there are some highlights as well it's not all the lowlights, but but uh, these are i mean i found the the races that i've been on to be you know tremendous experiences like tremendous life experiences um rather than just races themselves so i mean hopefully as we go through the uh the, go through the discussion we'll just give you a sense of um what those experiences were like
1: but let's let's start the journey at the very beginning then because I'm, I'm assuming you don't just start your journey in running by just going out and doing 250 kilometer races straight out the gate so how did you get into running and and what's the what's the backstory um behind you know your adventures i
2: think it was a fairly typical progression um i i did a lot of sports and running at school i did a lot of camping and hiking I, the Scouts, when I was in the Scouts and in and around the North of Scotland, up in the Highlands, um, progressed in my mid-teens onto the Duke of Edinburgh Awards. Um, We would spend our summers camping uh, with friends up in the North. Um, Now, some of that stuff slowed down the first few years of graduating from college and business school, moving to London. Uh, but I did my first marathon in about 2006, and I think that got me back into to running. Probably wasn't until I got to Hong Kong in 2010 that the um, that the trail running and the hiking really took off. Um, Hong Kong's a it's an amazing environment for long distance trail and ultra running, despite what you might think from looking at the TV and the movies. Most of I think something like 90% of Hong Kong's actual national park and um, un, um, undeveloped, and there are literally hundreds and hundreds of kilometers of long-distance trails with thousands of meters of vertical ascents. Um, so it's an incredibly demanding training environment. Thousands of meters of climb. It's very hot, very high humidity. Um, and if you can, if you train here, you'll I think you can be pretty successful anywhere. Um, where, where I live in Hong Kong, I'm less than 10 minute jog to the start of a number of trails and runs um and so that story it's a fairly typical hong kong progression um there's a very big leisure hiking trail running scene uh, a number of successful trail runners are based out of hong kong um the ford deserts race series company um, is based out of hong kong um people typically get into it off the back of the kind of the leisure hiking. So you, you, at the weekend, people do 10, 20-kilometre hikes, followed by lunch at one of the beaches or in one of the little villages. Um, then you end up participating in some of the, the shorter sponsored races or events. Barclays had a sponsored race, uh, the Moon Trekker, which was a 40-kilometre overnight race um, around some of the um, the the trails. Um, and then you'll find that people will kind of graduate into the uh there's a famous event here of the oxfam trail walker that's a single stage 100 kilometer event but that's typically in teams four person team um and there's a 48 hour cutoff for that over so 10 stages um and then graduating from that there's then a couple of internationally renowned single staged solo events so the north Face 100 kilometer race um, and the Hong Kong 100s, um, and these have, both of these races have about four and a half thousand metres of, um, or 15,000 feet uh, approximately, um, of vertical ascent over the 100 kilometres. So when you're doing these and, you know, the heat, humidity, and the, um, potentially the rain as well, and very, very variable conditions, that it's, it's, it's a great training environment, and it's it's very easy to progress. It sounds sounds. Less likely, but it, it it's a fairly typical progression. There's a that people go on when they when they arrive in Hong Kong.
1: And uh and and for a uh, Scot that was used to the training in the Highlands and then going over to Hong Kong, what's the change been like uh, there?
2: During the during winter and spring, I mean the weather's generally you know very mild. It's dry. Typically, um, temperatures are in the mid teens. There's very low humidity. It's, typically pretty dry I and mean, as you go through the spring and into summer, that does get you know very very hot very very humid um you know you can pick up frequently um chafing is a problem so you need to sweat dehydration hydration is always an issue so yes it is certainly a different environment from from kind of being back in the uh, back in scotland
1: well I, I really like how you know you, you see the evolution and and i i hope it this conversation is going to make anyone that is kind of Considering something like this, feel that like, yeah, I could do this, um, but obviously, you're going to throw in a bit about uh, chafing and, and toes, mouths falling off uh, in the middle just to give them a reality <laughs> check as well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, and and Brian, do you, let, so that's that's a that's a really interesting um, story about how you got into this. Could you explain to to me and our listeners exactly what the races you did were that we're going to be talking uh, about today? You know, I really want to kind of build up a picture of of distances, how many people are doing them, and uh, some of the conditions and grueling obstacles that awaited you in in those races.
2: Sure, so um, as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the single stage races, the 100k races, that was my first foray into the, the the longer distance races. So, 100k races in Hong Kong, I did a handful of those, and then um, graduated to the Four Desert Race Series. Um, so, the Four Desert Series is similar to, I think some people may have heard of the Marathon de Sable in uh, Morocco. That's a uh, 250-kilometer multi-day stage race. Um, The format for these races is uh, pretty similar uh, wherever they're held. So it ends up being four consecutive uh, marathon-type distances, so 40 kilometers-ish, followed by a double marathon. Um, At the end, the double marathon is typically performed. the, The timings, permitted timings, are pretty generous so they normally give participants about 48 hours to complete the, the long stage and the long stage would typically be in the 75 80 85 90 kilometer range um the four races i completed and i completed the race c the four desert race series last year um that that's considered by time magazine to be in the top 10 endurance competitions in the world so I completed the Atacama race in 2013 in Chile. Um, The Gobi race across the Gobi Desert in Xinjiang, Northwest China in 2016. Uh, The Namibian Desert on the Skeleton Coast in Namibia in 2017. And then the last race was in Antarctica in 2018. Um, In terms of participation, there's usually about 125, maybe up to about 150 participants on the race. And the the format is um, all self-supported, which means competitors need to carry all of their own food and equipment, except the tent. So the tent is the only thing um, that you don't bring with you. Um, water is provided every 10 kilometers. Food, the average bag, you know, you're carrying all your food for effectively a full week. Um, the average bag, I would imagine, weighs about 10, 11, 12 kilograms. Um, there's a there's a full list of mandatory equipment that all participants need to carry, kind of things like torches, um, a minimum amount of calories is about 2,000 calories per day um, for the seven days, and you know that, that actually ends up being heavier than you think. Um, but in those conditions, if you're doing 250 kilometers over over the period of a week and you're carrying all your food with you, then you're you're, you're really not carrying enough food to replenish during the course of the rest. so you're probably burning about six thousand calories per day, but you're only bringing about two thousand. Um, so by the end of the by the end of the week, you almost certainly run out of food and um, you're very very hungry.
1: So you've not only got the conditions, but you've got the the extra weight. You've got obviously the the length of the the task as well. I mean, it's uh, I mean these days obviously people are, a lot of people kind of do marathons and stuff this is this is an, a, another level um you know do you, did you enjoy pushing your body and mind through through these challenges
2: yeah so i mean but I, I think about uh when i did the first one the first one was i think you know i would completed the hong kong the oxfam trail walker with some friends in 2012 and you know i think i think we felt we did reasonably well in, in, in actually completing it and it was one of those discussions in a bar a few weeks later where somebody suggested well why don't we sign up for um the Atacama race? and um it was a again probably a, a reasonably familiar situation where somebody signs up and the others don't all sign up so i ended up signing up for it on my own um i had picked up uh an injury i'd picked up a um Um, foot injury about three months before the race playing football and unfortunately um, when I went into the race I hadn't actually been able to run for um, it was a stress fracture in my right foot so I hadn't been able to run for about three months I was waiting for the the stress fracture to heal so uh, at the time I wasn't able to get a refund on the race I thought well if I can refund it I'll do the race the following year I'll do something else the following year but as it was I had to go ahead so I was Bit injured going into the race, um, I thought I'd go along for the experience. I had some vacation I needed to take. And so went down to Chile, um, went on the race and then had a pr- pretty tough time, uh, you know, untrained, um, hadn't run for a few months. And it, you know, wasn't, I think, that prepared for, for, for the experience or the difficulty of it. I mean, there's a level of preparation that these that I mean, that, that I think gives you a sense of I think that the level of preparation that you need to be able to get through these things um and do it in the best way and without obviously suffering all the way through.
1: Yeah, well I say I think even when you see two hundred and fifty kilometre race and you think chilly, you think these things are hard enough. When you add in uh, an injury and and less training plus carrying your own stuff, that extra twelve kilo weight you said, you know, being self sufficient. Um I mean when you dig down, it gets more difficult and difficult by the sounds of it. I mean, what were there any points in that first race where you thought, "Wow, what am I doing here?"
2: You you can you can get through the first day, and as I said, the first so you get to the campsite, you start on the first day, and you do 40 kilometers. Now the the Chile race started. Uh, that race is run between about 3,000. It's run about 3,000 metres above sea level. So that's up, I think, uh, around about 13, 14,000 feet. Now, when you get to the end of the first day and you've done effectively a marathon at 3,000 metres above sea level, and then you, you know, try to stretch out, you're, you're painful and you're sore from the race, you don't have a full... Um, you're not able to have a full meal to replenish yourself. And then you sleep in a, um, a rocky tent... Uh, and then you wake up the next morning and you have to start all over again. And then you get through day two and you're stiffer and you're more tired and your feet are probably starting to blister because you've got sand in your shoes. Um, and then you get to the end of that day and then you again sleep in a rocky uh, campsite in the desert and temperatures have probably dropped from about 40, mid-40s down to five. And then you wake up the next morning, and you have to do it again. And that's your ordinary then on day three. So at that point, you're about halfway through. And it's really just a question of just trying to get through each day. So not really thinking about the end, not really thinking about, you know, why am I running 250 kilometers? It's really just about trying to get through each stage. And so there were certainly points on the the Atacama race first time round where, because you've not done a race of that type before, because you don't really know how much pain you're going to suffer up between where you are in the end, you really just have to keep breaking it down into these very small micro targets, so that you're kind of mentally just finding the best way of adapting to the situation and get through to the very end.
1: Was was there a, almost a benefit, an advantage, to like you say, you don't know the kind of pain that's coming up. You don't know the kind of conditions. It's almost like a ignorance is bliss kind of moment in that sense.
2: Yeah, I guess that works both ways. Um, I think if I knew first time around what, what the pain was going to be like, I'm not sure, I I've done it. But then as you move on to your second race or your third race or any other race, you don't then have that fear of the unknown. So it ends up being a question of, well, I've managed to get through this kind of thing before. I more or less know what it's going to feel like. Um, I know it's going to be hard, but if I've done it before, I can probably do it again, and that gives you a lot of comfort. I think as you go into other races and set yourself up for other
1: challenges. And obviously, the the, the physical uh, toughness of this event is is obvious. Um, some of the mental challenges, again, it's, it's probably hard for for most people to imagine. Were there were there people alongside you in the races, and uh, and uh, did you have you have company at stages and did you go kind of long periods of time where it's just, just you and, and your thoughts and that own kind of um, self-talk voice?
2: If I think about the races, so some of these races, I had a look back yesterday at some of the times I took. So I think on one of the races, maybe it was in Namibia, I did that race in about so 37 hours of combined racing. So... On, on on some of the marathon stages you might be doing seven eight nine hours a day certainly on the long stage you'd probably be doing nine you'd probably be doing 12 13 14 hours so for for long stretches of that you know for 125 participants you, you can find yourself you know genuinely alone in the middle of a desert environment uh, as the field stretches out over the course of the day over 80 kilometers, that the field just breaks up. People take time out at checkpoints, um, and you will find yourself having long stretches where you're on your own. Um, that there are there are moments in time where you've got company of someone that you're long, running alongside with. I certainly had moments moments like that where I was helping people that I was running with, or they were helping me. Are you getting into conversations and you're using that to kind of break um, a little bit of the monotony? But even when you're on your own, you don't really. It's a strange um it's a strange environment to be in. When you're on your own, you're not necessarily thinking, have a, you don't necessarily have all of this time to think about your personal life or your work life or your career or things that you should be doing back at home. It ends up being uh like a hugely immersive experience. So you're absorbed by thinking about um the next checkpoint. Um, your food, your hydration, your feet, any pain that you're dealing with, any niggles that you're dealing with. Um, You're trying to think about getting to the next hill, getting to the next point in horizon. Uh, And there isn't isn't actually a lot of time to sit and contemplate because you're just so involved in the actual process of trying to get to the next stage, get to the next checkpoint, and get to the end of the race.
1: Yeah, because there's there's an element of, of danger in this stuff as well, isn't there? If you if you get certain parts wrong, or if you don't hydrate properly, especially in the, the extreme conditions you're talking about, so you, you're very much able to stay focused then in 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 your task when you're in these um, on these long endurance races. Uh,
2: a couple of the races I was on where people had to drop out, and so I I, I don't have the exact number, number, but I would imagine that in most races. A dropout rate of about 10 to 15 to 20 percent would probably be typical. Um, There have been races, uh, two of the races that I was on had some pretty severe conditions on two of the long stages. um, In the Namibia race uh, two years ago, 2017, on the long day the the wind changed from being a coastal wind coming in from the sea to kind of cool the positions down and it became a desert wind uh, and the only way I can describe it is that it was you know it felt like you were running in a sauna with somebody blowing a hair dryer on your face so a you know, 30 40 mile an hour wind in a sauna and the, the temperature was certainly up in the the low 40s uh, so I think by about stage by about checkpoint three. So probably about 30 kilometers into an 80 kilometer stage, were you know a good number of people who just decided that they couldn't continue any further just because of the um, the difficulty of getting through that stage. One of the big lessons is that if you have if you've got the experience, if you've got the muscle memory of knowing that it's going to be painful, and you've managed to get through or you found a way to get through it before, it is very helpful to take those lessons and memories and play them back as you're trying to get through um, that particular moment. It's hugely helpful to have that in mind.
1: And did you ever, at any point in the four races, come close to that yourself, to to, to saying, OK, this is, okay. not I can't do this, but you know, getting to that, that almost breaking point?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, I would certainly say on the on the Gobi race uh, in 2016, I my feet were... Um, my feet were shredded by the end of that race, and I lost a huge amount of skin on the back of my feet. Um, it probably took about a month for the skin to grow back properly after the race, maybe maybe even longer. Um, and that that was particularly difficult. And you know, I, even earlier in that race, I, that that race again started up about three thousand meters above sea level. Um, I found it difficult in the first few stages to um to breathe. Uh, and I wasn't sleeping, I was coughing at night, and I thought it had something to do with the altitude. And on stage three, I just found myself getting dropped by the group I was running with. So there was a few few people from um, my tent that were running together, and um, by about checkpoint three, I think on day three, I, they just blew me away and I dropped and I got to the check, next checkpoint and I spoke to the doctors and said, well, I think there's something wrong. I just I've got no energy left. And they they listened to me and they said, Oh, well, you've got bronchitis. Um, so that was um that, that whole race was just very, very, very painful. Um going from bronchitis on phase one, day two, day three at altitude. Um, and then having the impact of the feet and the feet the, the feet issue was caused by the fact that on the earlier parts of that race, it was actually very wet. We were at altitude, there was um Snow and hail and a lot of rain. And your feet were with some river crossings where your feet got pretty wet. And then in the latter stages of that race, um, down in the Black Gobi Plateau, um, the temperatures were up in the almost I think almost touched about fifty degrees. Um, I, I know that when I go into a race, my feet are usually the weakest link. So I, um, my feet tend to uh, seem seem to be susceptible to blisters. So I think when I got to the end of the long stage with only 10 kilometres to go on the final day, I was so relieved because I, I don't, I think at that point I wasn't sure if I could actually do much more than the last 10 kilometres.
1: Yeah, but you did. and <laughs> you, you got through the race. Um, so yeah, I must be now really great to look back on that and think that was the toughest time and, uh, and I came through it.
2: The, the funny thing is uh, in, in the course of, just having a think about the races in preparation for this chat. I was I was going through some of the logs and the blogs that I'd written and um, uh, the Gobi race was certainly the hardest. If I compared it to the easier the, the easiest race I had and the race I did best in was the um the Namibia race and I think I finished about twelfth in that race. But in that in that race, um I had pretty um no major issues, feet were relatively okay, um, food, but no health problems, no nickels, no injuries. But it's actually the race I take least satisfaction from. Um, the one that I take most satisfaction from is the one where I had the most number of problems, had the bronchitis, my feet were in real difficulty, the, the heat got up to 50-ish. Um, and that was a kind of real test, I felt, of just how far you're able to mentally. Um, push yourself uh that, that the, on the long stage on that race there was a sandstorm um towards the end of the uh towards the end of the race so the stage was i think it was an 80 kilometer stage on day five and i completed it in about 20th place and i got back to the campsite about midnight but there's still probably about 80 people out on the out on the course and this was about midnight so it was Pitch black. The sandstorm came in and forced the cancellation of or the abandonment of the stage because it was too dangerous to have people um wandering off in the desert away from the markers and um out into the middle of nowhere in the middle of a sandstorm. So you know, looking back, you know, getting through the bronchitis and getting through the feet and the sandstorm and everything else. I mean, that that one for me felt like okay. Kind of earned the medal and the beer at the end of that race.
1: <laughs> I certainly did, and I mean, that's quite a good life lesson for people, isn't it? You know, sometimes when you face adversity, you come out better and stronger. Uh, you know, after it, um, not just in running, but in, in work, in in anything. If if you've overcome something, perhaps you take more satisfaction um, uh, after the matter.
2: I mean, that that was certainly my experience. That the the, the things that are. The races that that were more meaningful were certainly the ones that had the bigger challenges, the harder obstacles, the more difficulty.
1: You you kind of touched on race one, two, and and three, and and if I'm right, the the Sahara one was uh, the second one, and the Gobi Desert was number three. Um, yeah. So that's, that's that's similar-ish conditions for those three races, but then you come on to number four, and it's a bit colder. <laughs> I imagine.
2: Yes, um, and that was the first time. That, so that was the Antarctica race, and I mean, that was a bit of an adventure just in itself to get there. So uh, you have to get to Ushuaia in southern Argentina, and then it's a two, two-and-a-half, three-day voyage across the Drake Passage on a on a large passenger ship with huge swells and storms. Um, down to Antarctica, down to the Antarctica Peninsula, um, and then five stages along various dropping points on that peninsula. Um, King George Island, Deception Island, uh, Paradise Bay, um, I think Danko uh, Danco Island as well. Um, and that was the first time I'd spent any real time um, running in snow and in blizzard conditions. Again, the 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 conditions were you know hugely variable there as well um very energy sapping running through you know snow n- unpacked snow so snow that would go up to your knees um and again just really having to try and grind it out to get through the event um you certainly you were out there for seven eight hours per day on the on the uh, the five stages and um we're trying to just find a way. To, trying to just find a way to get through it.
1: Wow! Oh, and what was the the scenery could like compared to, to the desert? Uh, the desert races.
2: So the, most most of these races, most of the stages were on uh, coastal points, and uh, you'd be overlooking some of the some of the glaciers, some of the islands with uh, icebergs in the bay. Um, to get to to get from the ship to the the mainland, you'd be very uh, across on zodiac speedboats. And then you dismount and get onto the, um, get onto the island. And then it would be a question of running, running alongside, oftentimes running alongside penguins. Um, So their penguins would be cutting across some of the, uh, some of the trail. Um, Whales in the bay, whales, uh, blue whales and fin whales, um, part of the scenery as well. And then oftentimes you hear icebergs cracking and creaking and forming and uh, the glaciers collapsing into the uh, into the sea it was a pretty spectacular place to be it's a real um a real experience to to be there and then even a you know huge experience to be on the ship on the way down so not not one for anyone who's inclined to seasickness.
1: doesn't yeah it sounds like that um and that's that's amazing that all the wildlife around you at the same time that must have Especially in the last race, that must have been a nice kind of added bit of motivation. And, you know, pick up the spirits at, at tough
2: times. One of the things about that race is sometimes on these things you spend a lot of time looking at your feet um, because you're looking for you when you're running through the deserts. Uh, there's so many rocks around; it's so easy to stand on a rock, misplace your footing, twist an ankle, and you know, on on this race, you know. Uh, whenever the occasion allowed it was good to just stop and look around and try and take in the um, take in the scenery. It's probably a once in a lifetime opportunity to go there. So you know, maybe some of the other venues I'll be back, but I think it's unlikely I'll be back to Antarctica.
1: Yeah, it sounds like a real life experience uh, at the same time. And uh, some of the pictures that, that I've seen of your races, um yeah the deserts you can you can kind of almost feel and imagine the brutality of it. Uh, the Antarctica ones just some some incredible shots. Um, the kind of pictures that that I hope are uh, all over your house uh, framed in in obvious places but there's one where you can see most of the competitors and this incredible backdrop of snow and water and um, and bits of ice in the water but even then if you zoom in on the people you can see how high everyone's kind of having to lift their legs to to, to trudge through (laughs) through the snow and that yeah it really gives you an idea of just the challenge and again still got the The equipment on your back Um, and was it was it heavier or did you have to obviously take more for the warmer clothing in in Antarctica?
2: Uh, Yeah, so that you were carrying a lot of extra equipment, Um, again, mostly extra clothes just to stay warm. So there's a lot of wearing gloves and second layers and third layers just to try and stay warm. And and the the environment is a a protected environment from a uh, introduction of food and new species Perspective, so um, they're very protective of people bringing food onto Antarctica. So we could only eat food at the various checkpoints uh, because they didn't want to contaminate the natural environment with any kind of alien um, alien seeds or um, crumbs or anything from any of the uh, the food that people would be bringing onto the continent.
1: Yeah, it makes sense, but it must be must be tough, especially after you've got used to racing a certain way um over the previous three uh stages. Yeah. 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 And and Brian, so yeah, you, know, you you're you're a stage four. Um you know, this is uh an endeavor you've undertaken over years. What was it like getting to the finish line of of, of this race? What was that moment like?
2: Yeah, I think mixed emotions. I
1: i I'd,
2: I'd been building up to completing those four races. Um it was certainly part of a um a, a series that i had i had wanted to complete for quite some time but i think the strange thing is that as soon as the race finished thoughts immediately turned to right okay what's next um and i think i think it's probably i, I don't think i ever had any sense well that's not that done i'm just gonna sit back and not do anything else um, and, I, and I think I found that in conversations with lots of other people who were on the race, everybody was turning their sights to okay, well, tick that box. What's next? Um, and there were plenty of other events and races to be completed uh, or, or other challenges. And I think for for most of the people with the mindset of, of doing these things, most people were very quickly turning to okay, that was great, but you know, what's next on the list?
1: Yeah, um, and and was it a case of looking at the other nine events in the Time Magazine's most difficult <laughs> races on Earth and, and finding one of those?
2: Yes, uh, certainly a little bit of that. I mean, I've 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 met people on um, various races who have done like, many more extreme races or events um, than I think I would be capable of, and some of them have done you know very high altitude climbs. I've done Everest. I've done K2, and various things like that. I mean, I'd certainly like to do that kind of thing. Um, But oftentimes with these, it's a a question of getting uh, timing around vacation and holidays and um, breaks to be able to do them. But, yeah, I mean, there are certainly certainly races and events on – on, on my wish list that I'd like to get around to at some point.
1: Good. We'll get you back on for a uh, series two then with a, with a new story. <laughs> um, Brian, can I ask you it's a very simple question that might have not such a simple answer. Why do you do it?
2: That's a very, very good question. I think I've always felt I need to put myself in difficult circumstances. I I don't enjoy being too comfortable. I, I like I have liked the challenge of making things a bit difficult for myself. I, I think I, I know that I'm probably like most people, that if I don't set targets and goals for myself, then I probably have a tendency to drift. Um, but I've gotten up of I think, setting objectives to try and create some structure and discipline around what I do. Um, and I, I think I know that if the target is too easy, then I probably won't put the work in required to meet it. And so I think that's forced me to set, I think, harder targets or harder targets. Um, So just like, for example, I mean, I I enjoy hill running. And one of the reasons I enjoy running hills is because you can't really cheat a hill. You can't cheat gravity. If you're running on the flat, then most people, and and I I do it as well, most people who run on the flat and jog are mostly just plodding along. They're not really timing themselves. They're not really running at 70, 85, 80% of their capacity, they're probably running at 40, 50. But you can't really do that on a hill. Um, You can't cheat gravity. And you can't really do it if you're on um, something like a a climb or a multi-day event. Those types of events don't allow you to wing it or just try and get by. Um, And so I I found myself, I think, trying to make sure that I do something like this, or I find something hard to do every now and again. And Certainly over the last few years, it's been once a year. I, I would have been doing something this year had it not been for coronavirus. I was very much looking forward to doing the the uh, 250 in Georgia um, in the Euros um, in October, I think September, October. Um, but that wasn't possible with, the, uh, with coronavirus. But I'm certainly, I think, of the mindset now that I very much like to put something in and use that as a reset and just to remind myself of priorities and taking myself out of my comfort zone. That's, I think, probably the most important reason for me as to why I do it.
1: And, and do you find that it's it's had benefits um, in, in your professional career? And, you know, have you, have you taken lessons from some of your experiences in these challenges and, and applied them?
2: Yeah, I mean I, I think I think I've applied I think I've applied these lessons in um a lot of my professional career and i I think initially I probably did it inadvertently, but the most important lessons I think are really about just trying to look at um, look at the race, look at targets, look at setting objectives, look at micro targeting. Um, having like a much broader context. um, I've seen, I think I've seen these lessons of broad application throughout my life and career. And I think there have been so many books and I think motivational posters written about, I guess, life lessons gained from running. And I don't think I'm going to add to that genre, but, you know, when you think about a career, a marathon, a marathon is not a sprint and a career is not really a sprint either. And I've been on races where the favourites have gone out very fast, very hard, very quickly, and have blown themselves up um, at or near the start because they just didn't pace themselves. And you very much need to pace yourself on um, a multi-day event. You you have to think with the 250 in mind because that's your ultimate objective. Um, I think doing these races has... Given me a sense of I think I think gratitude um, and also context and empathy. Um, I've been on races with people who are blind, who've had um, who've had like, disabilities, who've had um, recent illnesses, and it's hard to feel sorry for yourself. So even though I've had pain with feet and blisters and um, other injuries and whatever else, I mean, it's really hard to feel sorry for yourself if you haven't got some understanding of the journeys that other people have been on to get to the same place. I think it's been a great lesson in how to kind of break things down into the smallest target, That concept of micro-targeting. is just try and work out how do you get to the next hill? How do you get to that next point on the horizon? How do you get the next 50 steps? You know, count to 50, no matter, no matter how hard it is or how painful it is, just run for the next 100 steps and count to 100 and then do it again and then do it again. I think... I think a lot of it's just about on on races that are difficult and even even in parts of your career that might prove difficult, a lot of it's just about grinding it out. Sometimes you just have to get your head down and find a way to get something done. Um, and I think I think that applies, and I think that probably applies in all aspects of life, not just on races or
1: careers. Uh, Brian, that's a fantastic message. Thanks for that. And this, this podcast is all about uh, inspiration and, and motivation. I, I really hope that uh yeah our listeners can can take something away from that um and and what i like about uh you know your story is you talk about how you got into it and uh, and you almost get that feeling that yeah i could do this and certainly with with coronavirus like as you said that's going to cancel a lot of races you're going to have a lot of people kind of training but then sitting indoors afterwards thinking what can i what can i do next year so i I really hope that kind of that that build-up of uh people wanting to do something and, and listening to stories like yourself can really push people and inspire them to, to take on some races and do you have that feeling afterwards of like yeah you know anyone anyone can do this and and do, do you ever have people coming to you to ask you uh, advice on kind of how to get into it
2: very very much so. so so i mean the way that i would describe these races in terms of the, the makeup to say if it's if you have a field of one hundred. You probably have about 10 runners who are, and probably even five, who may be you know, internationally recognized trail runners. Um, there have been a number of uh, very successful trail runners who have done some of these races before, internationally renowned. Many of them have written books. and So you might have five or 10 of those. And the next 10 to 15 are probably people who have um, experienced ultra runners, experienced multi-day um, race campaigners, who know what it's like and who are really looking to try and get as high a place as possible. And then in the middle, you have people who are probably coming from a variety of walks of life, um, who are, you know, looking to be there for the experience. Um, and then towards the end, you have a group of people who are mostly just there for the experience and looking just to try and get through if it. It's all possible. And um, these people have varying degrees of fitness obviously the people at the front are serious competitors but as you go towards the end you've got people who walk the whole way um i would say the people who run are probably run most of it are probably only really the top 10 or so but even then there there are moments in the race when even the top 10 can't run the stages whether it's the sand you've seen i I sent some of the photographs of the sand dunes you can't run on sand dunes and it's just so tiring or you can't really run on on unpatched snow so there's a real um a real spread of people who participate and i think anyone who can put their mind to anyone who can complete a marathon could do one of these things anyone who can complete i would say a 10k can probably graduate to doing them but it's it's like I think um, it's like the old expression: it's it's one percent one percent inspiration and ninety nine percent perspiration. It's, the, it's much much more mental than it is physical.
1: Brian, thanks thanks for that, and uh, yeah, just the story is incredible, and and yeah, that that kind of message that yeah you, you can do this even if you're just at that ten k phase. The the path is there to, to get to uh, to get to wherever you want to get to, really. Um, the most difficult challenges in the world, if that's what uh, people aspire to. Now, I've, I've got a series of questions, Brian, that I, I'm asking every guest on the podcast this series. And the first one is, uh, who from the within the security services or financial services world has, has inspired you?
2: I mean, I, I saw this question when you sent it across, and, and I had a real think about it, and I think it would probably be unfair to highlight any any one individual. And that's largely because I think if I were to single out any one individual, I'd inevitably forget many that, that, that should have been mentioned. Um, but what I would say is, I mean, I, I've been fortunate enough in the course of my career to have worked with some real leaders and people who took chances on me and who were inspirations to me at uh, Bank of New York and Deutsche City. And um, those were people who were, always very supportive of helping me onto that next challenge and um, giving me early responsibility in whichever geography or function or role that i was um looking to try and take on and um as i said you know i've been very fortunate that they gave me the opportunities that they gave as i said i'm not trying to avoid the question but there, there are too many to, too many to mention
1: and where is inspiration from outside of your professional life come from?
2: Look, a lot of that inspiration for for doing things like this and setting these challenges really came from, I guess, from childhood and being around, I guess, organisations like the Scouts and Duke of Edinburgh Award and, and being on expeditions and things like that, and from history. I mean, for me, for me personally, going to Antarctica was, you know, a, you know, a real, um, a real privilege I guess having grown up reading stories of Scott and Amundsen and Shackleton and you know being there and in and, and that environment uh, and some of the steps that some of those people took is uh genuinely genuinely um inspiring and great to see I think even today some of the some of the tales of endurance and some of the the feats that some of the soul um some of the solo trans-antarctica expeditions um, or making, it, and that, some of some of those achievements are, you know, truly astounding. Yeah.
1: And finally, Brian, I, I feel like I could copy and paste various segments of, of the conversation we've had already into the answer for, for this part, but what's the, if you had to pick out one, what's the biggest life lesson you've learned that you would like to pass on to others?
2: I think the biggest lesson I've learned, uh, and again, very very personal to me, I think, and it has come from participation in these races and being on some of these challenges and, and being in circumstances where being through think, physical pain and um, discomfort, I think the biggest lesson for me is that there's usually almost always a way to get something done uh, and it's mostly a question of just grinding it out and thinking about how to try and achieve the objective, setting targets, breaking those targets down into smaller um, objectives and just grinding it out. That's probably the biggest lesson for me.
1: Yeah, brilliant. Well, Brian, look, as I said, we're recording this um, for my time first thing on a Monday, and uh, yeah, I want to say thank you for for this conversation. I, I feel like I'm I'm raring to go this week now. Um, it's it's been really great to hear the the, the steps along the journey, and uh, you know, four sets of epic two hundred and fifty-kilometer races. I, I don't know if there's a term for a, a thousand kilometers, but whatever that official measurement is, I, I'm sure everyone will listening to this will agree. It's it's, a, it's an epic feat, and um, you know, thanks for, thanks for sharing the story and being so kind of honest and, and open about the experiences along the way.
2: John, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and, and thank you for, I guess, giving me the opportunity to think back on some of those experiences.
1: Sure. Well, Brian, right, yeah. So thanks again. And uh, yeah, I'm sure our listeners will take a lot away from this. So thanks for being on the show.
0: Thanks for listening today and thanks again to our sponsors Smartstream who have supported us through this series along with their clients and even as I've discovered myself, frontline workers through donations they've made during this period. If you like what you've heard today, make sure you subscribe and keep an eye out each week for new episodes or listening on globalcustodian.com. Thanks again.